This is an ABC podcast. In 1850s London, the Industrial Revolution was in full swing. The city was filthy. And people were basically drinking poo. The Thames was was largely considered, it was an open sewer. This is Dr Declan Page from the CSIRO. There was no sewage treatment, so even where there was sanitation, it all just ended in the river, which then people also drew water, water from slightly downstream. Water supply was communal, with public pumps that people would visit to get water from. So certain pumps, for example, ones that were really shallow and largely connected directly to the river, would take water from the River Thames pump through a little bit of a little bit of sand of the groundwater and then be basically be pumping raw sewage from that was dumped in the tents. This was also a time of pandemic, but rather than a respiratory disease like COVID, it was cholera, a bacterial illness that spread through, how do I explain it? People accidentally eating or drinking poo. And in 1854, London was suffering through a particularly bad outbreak. No one knew why it was happening. But a man called John Snow had a strong hunch. And he focused his attention not only on one part of London, but a single tap. And one of these taps was the Broad Street Pump. After a bit of number crunching... He was able to see the correlation between where people drew their water and cholera outbreaks. There was a very direct connection between this pump and the prevalence of cholera in the local region. And then he did something about it. And so what John Snow did is he came and he took the, the handle off the pump and put a lock on it so people could, would stop using it and have to go to a different one and thereby reduced cholera and was able to show that he reduced cholera incidents in that local area. It was a public health revolution that solved not only a deadly mystery, but to cap it all off, it's regarded as a founding moment of the science of epidemiology. It was a revolution within a revolution. So, what's all this got to do with the novel coronavirus, I hear you ask? Well, COVID is all around us, and at the moment, it's only getting worse. You know, in the whole of 2020, there were just on 1,000 deaths, and yet we've had more than 7,500 deaths in the first half of 2022. It seems that while vaccination will save many lives, it's not going to be enough alone. We're doing something a little different on today's show, if you haven't noticed already. Do we need another revolution in public health? But this time, not in the water we drink, but the very air we breathe. Yikes, I have found myself on a bus. I mean, I chose to get on it. (laughs) It wasn't part of my plan for tonight and I am shook, but I am to get off this bus. I just feel really vulnerable all of a sudden. Basically, I don't have the choice to get off until I get to my stop. And I can't hold my breath for that long. So, yeah, pray fatigues. We hear a lot about improving ventilation including from this guy. Have they got their ventilation right? Ventilation, taking action on ventilation. Ventilation, ventilation, ventilated environment. But we don't seem to be talking very much anymore about ventilation. But what do experts, and Norman, mean when they say that ventilation needs to be improved? How bad is the air I'm breathing? How do you even find out something like that? Well, it turns out there is a way, and the idea of how to do it came our way from a guy called Brendan. 
Brandon, nice you to doing? meet you. How are you doing? Good to meet you. you How is our reading looking at the moment? Oh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, That's, it's, I mean, we're outside, yeah, we're so outside. that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all good. Brendan is a keen CoronaCast listener and got in touch via our Submit a Question link. So I set up a time to meet with him. We chatted for about an hour. I'd love to play you some of our chat, but I forgot to record it. Brendan lent me a CO2 monitor to carry around, with the idea being that the level of carbon dioxide in the air is a sort of proxy for how well a space is ventilated. The higher the level of CO2, the stuffier the room. The stuffier the room, the higher the risk of catching COVID if a positive case is around. All right, so I've just picked up the carbon dioxide monitor from Brendan and we were sitting at a very windy, cold cafe, um, windy and cold by Brisbane standards at least, but very well ventilated. So the whole time we were sitting there talking, we had the monitor on the table and it was sort of around 4.20 for most of that. So I'm really curious to see how that changes as I go about my day and my next couple of days. Um, yeah, so I got in the car. Even on this short drive, I think I'll see see what, what difference it makes. And thus began the great CO2 monitoring experiment. The reading is saying 913 parts per million of CO2, which is actually, I think, a lot more than I thought there would be, considering how few people there are in the supermarket. In the next few weeks, I travelled through airports. Pretty packed in here, but of course everyone's wearing masks. And I'm getting a reading of about 810. On planes, the... CO2 monitor got up to about 1500, which is in like the red zone, at right about the time where we all took our masks off to eat our food. To the gym. 1200 a couple of times. So, I mean, not great. And through meeting rooms, 2000, right in the red zone. And everyone was a bit surprised and we all sort of looked at each other like, oh my gosh, we might have COVID in this room. Um, and then I just asked if we could open the door and we did and it like dropped by half like straight away. All the while taking detailed notes of CO2 levels. At the moment I'm just kind of feeling like, Ugh, I just wish I didn't know. I want to go back to living in blissful ignorance. I'm just tired of knowing when it's bad. And then just like is all too common these days. So here's something funny. Yesterday, my family and I went for a road trip down to the Gold Coast from Brisbane to see some family. And I just happened to look at the carbon dioxide monitor in the car as we were going down. It was like, yikes, that's high. Good thing it's just me and my immediate family. Well, guess who tested positive for COVID? This morning, one of my immediate family members, I mean, I guess I live in the same house as them anyway. It's just kind of ironic that I've got this monitor. I happened to look at it in an enclosed car. Not really a massive surprise. Feel, still feeling fine at the moment, but it's just like, just timing, I guess. And um, yeah, I don't actually really know what to do with that information, but here we are. I'm a close contact. I would have been anyway, but I feel like I'm a particularly close contact given... I think it was about 2,000 parts per million in the car with all four of us in there. Yeah, I guess I'm now monitoring for symptoms, wearing a mask and keeping my distance from other human beings again. So all in all, my little experiment was eye-opening and sobering. I was surprised how bad some places were and downright concerned at others. I avoided catching COVID, but only just. 
And with new stickier variants that are reinfecting people more quickly, my odds of catching this virus again are getting even shorter. So it's no wonder experts are urging dramatic action. We need the same revolution which happened in the 18th century in relation to water and cleaning the water. We now need the same revolution in relation to um, indoor air quality. This is... I'm Lydia Morawska, professor at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. I led a paper which was published in the Journal of Science titled Paradigm Shift in, uh, in Approach to Infection Control. And when she's not writing papers on infection control, Lydia just like me, is carrying around a CO2 monitor as a proxy for ventilation. And that's because she says proper airflow is the number one thing that could help dramatically reduce and limit infection of COVID-19. Improvement in ventilation means reduction of the risk, means uh, lower number of cases and lower number of health effects. That's that's as simple as this. And there have been enough studies demonstrating this, that in an environment where ventilation was uh, better, there was, in in fact, much reduced uh, number of cases. Right. So if there's so much evidence, like why aren't we seeing it being done? What are the barriers? Well, political barriers... The usual government response barriers in many situations, particularly when there isn't direct and immediate relationship between the cause and effect. If I can compare the situation with contaminated water, imagine that water in the tap is contaminated and people drinking the water would get affected basically immediately. So it's a very, very short response and lots of people immediately. So the cause and effect is very close in time and very clear to demonstrate. So therefore, there's no doubt that actions should be taken and who will be blamed if it's not taken. But in terms of infection, let's say that people are infected, several several people are infected in a particular interior. They will not get sick within a few hours. It will take a few days. And then proving that this was that particular environment, not somewhere else, it's by itself difficult. Of course, if the whole room was infected and there were cases like this, then it's much easier. But still, it is an investigation into this and each case is specific. So this is kind of more nebulous and it's always then more easy to sort of put blame. Maybe it was not here, maybe it was there. And was it really here? So this is the, co- the, the complexity compared, let's say, with the situation of cleaning, disinfecting the, the, the water. We've seen governments and businesses really recommending vaccines and masks and staying home and all those sorts of things that are obviously useful. We know that there's evidence behind them, but we haven't really heard quite as much about ventilation. Why do you think that is? Well, this this is a very, very big problem because this is the one of the most important measures to take. Otherwise, it is putting responsibility on individuals. You put the mask on, you stay home, you take all the disadvantage of the situation, and we won't do anything in terms of improving ventilation and lowering the risk. I think this this is the main reason that this is the government prefer to put the responsibility of individuals rather than taking actions in this. So that's the problem. So ultimately... Improving ventilation alone won't remove COVID from our lives, but it will help reduce the risk of infection. Because poor ventilation is everywhere. Even Lydia, our ventilation expert, still managed to catch COVID the other day. And guess where? 
at a conference, uh, and interestingly, this was a ventilation conference. Uh, and when I sent an email to my family, uh, instead of taking pity of me, they all laughed that you got COVID <laughs> at the ventilation conference, which wasn't very considered. But the point is that it is this, it is that situation, particularly social situations. So whether it was the, the dinner when I entered and I realized immediately that this is the wrong place, but I was a guest of honor during that conference and I wouldn't, uh, during the dinner, you cannot keep your mask on, you can't do anything. So that was the situation, shall I take this risk or shouldn't I take? I took the risk and <laughs> we saw what happened. Well, that's all we got time for today. I hope you liked this special episode. We'll be back with another usual episode on Wednesday, so don't worry. Let us know what you think. Go to abc.net.au slash coronacast, click ask us a question and send in your feedback. You can also ask us a question. See you soon. <laughs> <laughs>